Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to be with you here once again in uh, Charlotte. I like the particular last note. <laughs> what a magnificent instrument. Played so well. I think that uh, Mr. King does justice to the tuba. <laughs> Dr. Meredith asked if I might just give you a little information about the UK where we're up to, what's happening there, uh, both in the church there and also uh, in Europe and in the United Kingdom. I should say this at the outset, that what has happened here in the United States is mirrored on the other side of the Atlantic, that we are really in the same situation economically. Uh, it was both the British and the American governments that uh, developed this very, very open and free uh, market, uh, which led to the excesses and the greed uh, of the bankers. I was talking with Mr. Aparty, and I said, Mr. Aparty, have you noticed that no banks have been robbed lately? Because all the robbers got inside. <laughs> and started, learnt to wear white collars and look very professional. Uh, so I think there's a lot of anger here in the United States, and uh, certainly in, in England, at the number of high bonuses that are still being paid after the governments have put money into the banks. And these men uh, get up and say, well, we're very sorry, but uh, I think they're crocodile tears. Uh, that there is no, And a lot of people are hurting as a direct result of what has happened there. Well, I'll tell you something. Human nature is the same worldwide. And... Uh, the bankers don't have a, a market on greed. All human beings uh, suffer from it to one degree or another. I should mention to you that the churches, uh, the church and the congregations in, uh, in England and uh, the video groups that we have there have been growing of, of late. Uh, I should uh, mention that uh, Mr. Meekin uh, coming to us, I think most of you had a chance to meet him when he was here, he is just a very, very fine asset uh, to the church. He has a wonderful personality, and uh, for an Englishman, he's almost an Australian. <laughs> but we get on very well. It's, it's really quite interesting. In June this year will be uh, 40 years since I first met Mr. Meekin uh, at Ambassador College in Bricketwood, and uh, uh, he was, uh, we were in the same room in my freshman year, and he was actually the room monitor. And so um, now I've become his room monitor. <laughs> and so we've, we just get on so well. His wife is actually in Washington. She's an American, and her mother is not well, and she's been spending time with her mother in, uh, near Seattle. And uh, so uh, Mr. Meekin has been at home alone, and... Uh, but he's been very, very busy. We've been working together. We put quite a lot of work into the feast site for 2009. Uh, we had booked the feast site uh, where we were last year in Clanclochlan, and uh, we decided we would book that again, and uh, we thought we should be okay. We can seat up to about 180 people there, um, including we had about 40 or 50 visitors from the United States and Canada. Well, we're going to have over 180. We're going to have 200, maybe 220 people for just from the UK and Ireland. 
because the, the church has grown very, very much uh, in the last, uh, since the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, some of that has to do with the fact that uh, Mr. Meekin is uh, with us. And uh, so some people have asked questions about uh, uh, where they have been and they've made decisions uh, independently with no coercion uh, from anyone in our church. And they have made the decision uh, to uh, come with us. Uh, and not just from one particular group, but also from some other uh, groups as well. So it's really quite amazing what has happened. And uh, in one particular church area in Belfast in Northern Ireland, uh, we've actually more than doubled the, the number in the church there. So um, we need to uh, be looking at a, an elder. Uh, we have a very fine man that I uh, hope that we can ordain if uh, Dr. Meredith gives his stamp of approval and uh, we would certainly like that to work out if if that's what God wants so uh, we're working in that area uh, also uh, you mentioned or you heard a few things about Swaziland uh, the, uh, the first baptism there in that uh, independent country in the middle of South Africa uh, they came to us about 25 people uh, uh, f from a former association uh, were watching a, watching a television station uh, which carried the Tomorrow's World program. It was on for three weeks only. And when this particular television station heard that we don't believe, uh, we don't uphold the Trinity or we don't sub uh, subscribe to the doctrine of the Trinity, we were kicked off that station within three weeks. And yet in that three weeks, this one lady who was watching said, that's where I should be. And she phoned us, and she had a visit from Mr. Burta, and as a result, we now have about uh, 25, 26 people uh, with us. So those things, are, that's what's been happening. Mr. Simon Muthama, you heard about him down there in Kenya. Similar growth taking place there. We've got uh, a church developing in Tanzania, possibly one in Uganda, although I think that might not be, that's a little premature just yet. I should mention some other things. Do uh, you remember when I was here uh, re uh, in the past, I mentioned that the Queen would sign the Lisbon Treaty and give royal assent to that in July of 2008? Right on track. That's what's exactly what she did. And in so doing, she signed away her uh, sovereignty, really, uh, over the United Kingdom. Now, it's a little different. Uh, uh, it's not like she's the president and who had, in some ways, she didn't have much choice uh, she is the, the monarch, but under the British system, uh, she basically is required to sign what the government give her to sign. And if she hadn't have done so, then she wouldn't have been the monarch. So it was uh, uh, just the way it went. And, uh, but, of course, the Irish, you've heard what happened there, they said, no, we won't be signing up to that then. <laughs> we won't be having a part of that at all, at all. And so the Europeans came back and said, uh, uh, what did you say? <laughs> and the Irish says, did you not hear us what we said to you now? We'll be telling you we won't be joining now. And they said, look, will you please go away and vote again until you get it right? <laughs> and that's exactly the way the Europeans work. They, the, the, the European Union is just carrying on as, as normal as if the Lisbon Treaty has been passed. It's just a formality. And uh, it's a very interesting situation. It's not the way we are used to doing things in, in uh, Britain and America. So uh, that's pretty much uh, 
the details there. I should mention, and Mr. Ames, I mentioned this to him yesterday, uh, the situation in Zimbabwe. We don't have any actual uh, active members per se <coughs> in Zimbabwe. We do have a, a, a couple who uh, have shown some interest and uh, could very well be <coughs> with us. But <coughs> the situation there is that cholera is rife. Uh, there is no, uh, very little sanitation. 50% of the Zimbabwe population are, fast, uh, are facing starvation. It is a terrible... And this was a country that at one time was the breadbasket of Africa. And uh, Mr. Mugabe um, <clears throat> has formed what's called a coalition government, but uh, it is in name only. So things are developing in that part of the world. I'll be making a trip to South Africa, um, let me see, just uh, after Unleavened Bread, and then, then coming on up to, uh, to Kenya, and I'll be in Kenya for two or three days in Nairobi. I won't be doing any traveling in the country a, a great deal, but we'll have the annual general meeting there with Mr. Mathama and uh, taking care of things in that part. So uh, I'd like to tell you more, but there's just so much to going on, and I, I would like to give a sermon. <clears throat> Dr. Meredith, in his uh, recent Living Church News article entitled, What is Deep Conversion?, uh, asked the question of us here, what is the one key area of Christian life which shows whether a person is deeply converted or not? Is it Sabbath-keeping, uh, showing love, being zealous for the work? While all of those fruits are important, by themselves they may be misunderstood or misguided. He then goes on to say, to find the answer, let us consider carefully a number of fundamental teaching in God's inspired word, and he notices in particular, or notes in particular, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. God says it is the, it is the fools who despise wisdom. In other words, they will not take correction. And then Dr. Meredith concludes in the, in the next paragraph with this statement, the basic attitude of total surrender to God, of being willing to admit it and to repent when one is wrong, this is the key attitude of which I am speaking. Do you remember Mr. Armstrong used to say, the hardest thing for a human being to do is to admit they are wrong. And yet, let me tell you, if you allow God to work in your life so that you are able to admit when you are wrong, you have opened, a, you have a key to open a door to a whole new way of life. Because the only thing that stops us from admitting we're wrong is pride and vanity and stubbornness. And God tells us that those are not compatible with God's truth and God's way and God's word. And so I thought I would address the subject that Dr. Meredith uh, introduced in this uh, Living Church News. His title was, What is Deep Conversion? I'm going to maybe take an aspect of that by giving you four stages of conversion. Four distinct stages that we go through in becoming more deeply converted. 
So let me <clears throat> can take a, a, a point here which I thought might be of interest. <clears throat> I think most of us are, are aware of the four stages of metamorphosis. That is the changing biological dimensions of certain animals, such as a butterfly or maybe a um, dragonfly or a moth. I think most of you know what those four stages are. If you don't, I'll just mention them to you. A butterfly will lay an egg, and that egg will develop until finally it bursts open and a little caterpillar, a little larvae, comes out onto the leaf. It might be a silkworm, which happens to really enjoy mulberry leaves. And so the caterpillar comes out of the egg. It eats and it eats and it eats till a very important point in its body. There's a clock going and it goes like that and it changes. In this case of a silkworm, it will spin a little cocoon and then it will lie dormant there while inside that little larvae has now come to the <clears throat> point where inside the pupil stage it grows wings. That's just an amazing thing. When I was a boy, we used to have what you call the monarch butterfly here, that lovely gold and black one. You know the, the orange and black one? We called it a wanderer butterfly in Australia. And we used to, in the summertime, go up into the, the bush and we'd, cap, we'd find where these were, the... Uh, tiger, almost like striped like a tiger, the, the, the caterpillars, and we'd bring them uh, <clears throat> a bush home with these on, and we'd, we'd see them munch away, and then overnight it always seemed to be, you'd look up and hear on the curtain rod or somewhere, because we always, we always had them in our bedroom. <laughs> My mother was a very patient woman. <clears throat> and she, you'd wake up in the morning, and here was this beautiful green chrysalis, how many of you ever seen the, the chrysalis of a, of, a, of a monarch butterfly? Okay, a few of you. So they are really a beautiful little chrysalis. They're just hanging there with about six or seven gold specks around the top of the, of the chrysalis. And they'd be there for about a week, ten days. And then suddenly the, this lovely bright green color, emerald green color, would start to go black and look like it was bad. But what it was was that the butterfly was forming inside. And then overnight, or the next morning, or whenever it was, you would see that, that the um, chrysalis burst open. And this butterfly would hang there, its uh, leaves, its wings all crumpled up, and as it dried, they would fall down like this, and then it would harden, and you'd have the beautiful golden black monarch or wanderer butterfly. It was fantastic. I also had silkworms, and we did all sorts of things as a kid, you know. We lived right near the beach, and so I would uh, be always bringing stuff home from the beach, thinking it would uh, not smell, but it would die. And <laughs> so my mother would say, oh, get rid of it. <laughs> but those four stages of development in the metamorphosis of a caterpillar or a dragonfly or whatever it is, are very similar to our development, that we go through stages in our growth in the spiritual Christian life. 
And so I'd like to share with you then <clears throat> these four stages. Uh, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, I'm, I'm converted. And I say, well, uh, I'm, I like to think I'm becoming converted. <laughs> and let me show you what I mean. Let's turn to a scripture that Mr. Bruce Tyler uh, has emphasized several times uh, when I was in Australia and I worked with him. He would, uh, you know, we often think of Acts 2.38, which is important. Uh, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's really important. That's the formula for uh, uh, repentance and baptism. But I want you to note in particular Acts chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Peter said to them, Repent therefore and be converted, or become converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Can you see that? It says, Repent therefore and be converted. So conversion is the process of the Christian life after you've repented and after you've been baptized. I often like to use the analogy of marriage. Uh, Mr. King and Toby were married how long ago? About eight months. You know what? They were married on their wedding day. Right? They were married. But the marriage is for another 40 or 50 years. And so it is with, with repentance. We repent and we're baptized. So the baptism is the ceremony that begins the process of conversion or continues the process of conversion. So becoming a Christian is much like marriage. It takes hard work. It takes time. It has its ups and downs. But growth and development is what God wants to see. And so for us, we go through, in some ways, a courtship stage prior to our baptism. Much like a, a young couple who get to know each other and fall in love. And, you know, they go through that, uh, that situation where they, they love each other deeply and dearly. And, uh, you know, she thinks he's just wonderful and he thinks she's just beautiful. Uh, but even in that sort of stage, there are a few little sparks and a few difficult times and uh, uh, you know they realize that it's going to be hard work but they're prepared to make that commitment to marriage so it is with a, a young person or a person coming to conversion to repentance they they fall in love with Jesus Christ really if you if you think about it and they look forward to being married to Jesus Christ uh, and so we go through a very similar stage. So the first stage of conversion, out of, out of the four stages, you would say is your calling. <clears throat> your calling. So this first stage is when we <clears throat> arrive uh, at our Christian growth, is, is when we are challenged and even shocked by our personal life's shortcomings. We're amazed that we could have gone for years thinking that our life is acceptable to God as a Christian. Oh, okay, we might have a few bad habits, but we used to think we were pretty good and that God accepted us. And, and frankly, a lot of Christians think they are doing God a big favor. Have you ever noticed that? And you notice a lot of Christian preachers will say, God is just waiting for you 
to give your heart to him? And they think, and, and, and it's effectively saying, he just wants you to come and be in his family. And, and it's, you're doing God a big favor. Let me tell you. God does us the big favor in calling us. When we are called, we are given a chance of entering his family. But we have to realize where we are wrong. Where our ways do not are not the ways of God. And so that first stage of our calling, we come to a, a deeper understanding of who and what we are. We're uh, just amazed that Christmas is wrong and that Sunday uh, is not the right day to keep, uh, that we're going to have to stop smoking, swearing, telling white lies. And so we start to develop uh, an awareness that our life is not in harmony with God. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. This is uh, speaking about the, uh, the early days of our calling. Hebrews chapter 10 and uh, in verse 31. It says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you know, when it says it's a fearful thing, that doesn't mean a trembling sort of fearful type of fear. It, what it means is it's a wonderful, it's an awesome thing. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That he just is so interested and concerned in us. Verse 32. But recall the former days in which you were illuminated. You endured a great struggle with sufferings. <laughs> I remember when we were coming into God's church. Many of our friends from the Presbyterian church just disowned us. They wanted no more, nothing more to do with us. Verse 33, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, your friends in the church. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. And so we can see here that Paul was talking about the time when we were first called and we had to take those steps to separate ourselves from this world. We experienced for the first time the ostracism of those who, that we loved and worked with. Now, most of us are a little bit new at this when we set out and we make some mistakes and frankly we bring some of that persecution upon ourselves. I've told the story several times about how I went to church and they had a sermon on not laughing at dirty jokes. And the very next Monday, I went back to school. I was at high school at the time, and one of my good friends told me a dirty joke, and I didn't laugh. But not only did I not laugh, I sort of went, <laughs> you know, very, very self-righteous. And, of course, that friend didn't want to be my friend anymore. Uh, so sometimes, as it says, we... We, we struggle with sufferings in verse 32, it says, but <laughs> at that time we try to convert other people and we make those sort of mistakes. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. You know, this is the time when we are proving things. And it's, 
you know, we, 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 we just overcome one thing and we learn about another one. And it's almost like you, 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 you visit with the minister and you say, well, I, I, I've told my boss I can't work on Sabbath. And the minister then says, but are you ready for Feast of Trumpets next week? The what? The Feast of what? Trumpets. That's on next Thursday. And you'll need to ask time off for that as well. Oh, no, I've got a big assignment due. I've got, we've got a, a special manager's meeting on Thursday. Well, it's, I'm not telling you what to do. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and so, and so, and yet, so you go and you talk to the boss and you say, I can't be here on Thursday. Oh, that's not a problem. We've cancelled that meeting. Uh, someone couldn't make it. We've made it for the Monday. Are you going to be able to make it for the Monday? I should be right. And you go back and you get on your knees and you thank God. It's an, an incredible period of time that you go through. Coming to this new truth and this new understanding. Uh, I remember the very first uh, Days of Unleavened Bread Holy Day that we went to. And in Sydney they had a, a potluck. So you brought along some some uh, things to, to eat uh, and contribute for the for the meal and my dad took some ham and uh, he said here's some uh, I've got some ham for you they said thank you very much and dropped it in the rubbish bin <laughs> well what would you do with it <laughs> you couldn't do anything else but uh, that's how he learned you know that these things were important and and that's that period of time that we go through this is definitely a stage of conversion but unfortunately, oh, we didn't read First Peter 4 verse 1. Let's just read, do that. First Peter 4 verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. That also all your old drinking buddies, all the old uh, poker parties that you used to go to, and it would be sort of a haze of of cigarette smoke and there'd be the whiskey bottle on the on the table and uh, and you're playing poker and everyone's talking and you know there's all you know telling dirty jokes through the whole time that was that's the way it was for some, a lot of people and they put that behind them because that is not God's way and we change our lives <clears throat> so as I said this is definitely a stage of conversion but unfortunately it is only the first stage and some never seem to progress beyond it. In fact, I've noticed, and you've probably noticed the same thing, there are certain people, even sometimes people who are baptized, but they've never actually moved on beyond this first stage. And you will notice that they're people that are always looking back longingly to the life, their former life, and always talking about it. You know, I remember when, before I came into the church, I used to do this and I would do that. And uh, sometimes they'll uh, question or doubt things and they'll always be asking questions uh, of people in the church. Do you really believe this? And uh, Have you ever thought that uh, the church might be wrong on that? If you're like that, 
And if you know of people like that, just pray for them. And if you are like that yourself, consider that maybe that's as far as you've come in your understanding. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong, you know, that if, the, if you, we all have to go through that first stage of conversion. But we've got to move on beyond that. And so, as we all go through that period of time in our lives, and maybe your husband or your wife was converted and, and you came along to church, and, uh, or maybe it was your parents and maybe someone else, and there were a group getting baptized, and you asked if you could be baptized, and uh, somehow that's what happened. I don't know. I'm not trying to judge anyone. Please don't misunderstand me, and I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad either. Because really, this, this is the stage that we must go through, but we must move on. If we do not move on, then we will find ourselves, as I said, having difficulties with questions and doubts. And uh, so this is an important point. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7. Here's a, a situation where a church, it, it, you might say, or a congregation, uh, came to uh, this point where they were affected, as it says in, um, in verse 4, it says, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, this was their problem, they, they had become legalistic, and you have fallen from grace. And then it says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And then in verse 7, Paul says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So what I'm saying here is that sometimes you can have a situation where if people are not firmly grounded in the truth, Someone can come in and destabilize them, or in this particular case, it was a whole congregation. I know this sounds rather negative, uh, the way I'm putting it. I'm not, I don't want it to be that way. But when we come to the second stage of conversion, you'll be able to see exactly why it is that we've got to move on beyond just proving things to be doctrinally correct, or just dealing with things at that level. Because the second stage of conversion is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. These are the two important prerequisites for baptism. Let's turn to Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6. You know, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 6 <clears throat> gives us six different foundational and fundamental doctrines. <clears throat> in fact, he speaks to the church uh, the uh, the Hebrew uh, congregation to whom he is writing, it says, therefore, in verse 1, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of. And so we have six, six foundational uh, doctrines that fall into this category of repentance and faith. Notice what they are. 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So the first two that come before the doctrine of baptisms is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Whose faith is that? That's the faith of Jesus Christ. And so some people, as I said, reach level one but do not progress beyond because they have not experienced real repentance and real faith. This is where those of us in the ministry have an important role to play. If a person is baptized too early, they may have not developed the spiritual foundation upon which they can grow. And so that's why if a minister, you come to him and he say, I want to be baptized, and he asks some questions and he talks through with you, and at the end of the counseling, when you expected him to say, well, I'm going to baptize you now, and he says, well, I think it's probably best that you go back and you uh, read our, uh, some of our booklets. <clears throat> he might recommend the, one, the ones on God's existence and the proof of the Bible. Uh, he might uh, give you some <clears throat> instruction on repentance and overcoming. Uh, he might give you, a, uh, you might say, an outline for you to follow. He'll ask you if you are praying daily and studying God's word. He'll ask you a whole lot of questions. And if at the end of that he says, well, John, I, I th what do you think? Do you think you're ready for baptism? Well, yes, that's why I came to you. I want to be baptized. John, I can see that you, God is calling you. That's very clear. But I can see that it would probably really benefit you, benefit you if you could dig a deeper foundation than what you have at this time. What are you, what are you telling me? You're not going to baptize me? Well, I think it would not be helpful to you in the long run if I were to baptize you now. Well, I'm disappointed. I, I, I'm ready to be baptized. Well, um, let's, uh, let's think about it. How about and you go home, you spend some time, uh, set aside uh, next Sunday to fast, and ask God to show you what you cannot see in yourself. Oh, all right, but I, I thought I was ready. Well... Please just bear with me, John. Uh, we do love you and we want the best for you. And from experience, we're saying to you that it just might be good for you. Uh, you're certainly not going to lose anything or miss out on anything if you take some extra time in preparation. And so the minister, it's a very delicate balance, let me tell you. For ministers, baptism counseling is not easy because we, we don't read minds. Uh, we don't... Uh, we don't tell people what to do, but we do have to, using the Bible to counsel and work with someone, help them to come to where their baptism is going to be a well-grounded, deep, foundational baptism. And so they can build on it, and they'll be built on rock. Or another analogy, they're going to be a tree that has been dug, uh, has been the hole has been dug deep and the tree has been planted on good uh, nutrients. And, uh, you know, that's why baptism counseling is so important. And we should uh, be serious. Now, some people, <laughs> come to us, some people, and I'll never be ready to be baptized. <laughs> the other side of the coin. So we as ministers have to try and help them 
and say, well, what is it that, uh, you know, you think you still need to do? Oh, I've got so much more overcoming, Mr. King. I am just such a terrible person. <laughs> and with some people, we have to counsel them. Well, I, I see a good attitude. I think God has worked with you. Uh, you should consider being baptized. Well, well, let's have another, another little more time. And when you come back, maybe, you know, I think you could very well be ready for baptism. So can you see how difficult it is? But this important stage of conversion is where we really dig deep. Let's have a look at some scriptures here. Uh, the next one I'd like to look at is James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And verses 22 to 25. James 1, verse 22. It says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Well, I like to come in with an interesting concept here. And it says that we see our face in the mirror. Most of us, when we get up in the morning and our hair's all mussy and our We've got maybe a few little sort of dark patches under the eyes and men are not yet shaven and whatever. And you look at yourself and you think, that's not me. <laughs> oh, yes, the mirror doesn't lie. <laughs> and by the time you've shaved and you've washed and showered and you've brushed your hair or whatever it is, you think, oh, that's a little better. <laughs> Do you know what I like to say at this point? When we look into the mirror of God's law, because that's what it says, verse 24, it says, For he observes himself, uh, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty as a mirror and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Okay, I like to put it this way. This is the stage of conversion where Dr. Jekyll meets Mr. Hyde where you look in the mirror and where you thought you were a real saint, the other man looks back at you and you actually see yourself for what you are. And it's a time when you come face to face with the reality, where you no longer try to pretend that you're someone who you are not. This is the time when the... Uh, the public person and the private person meet and become one. Because human beings love to put on an outward persona. Well, hello, nice to see you. Well, fine, how are you? Right? This is the time when what goes on in the secrecy of your mind, you no longer can hide from God. It's the time where you go to God in prayer and you say, God, I can't hide. You've got me. <laughs> You've got me completely. And so this is a beautiful stage where God sees that we are able to refresh and, and clean up those aspects of our, our psyche, of our character, and bring them in harmony with God. 
And we do that by realizing that we must bury the old man in the watery grave of baptism and be resurrected to be a new man made in the image of Jesus Christ so that Christ can live his life in us so that when we do good works, as we heard in the sermonette, we do not think they're our good works, but we know they are the works of Jesus Christ living in us. And so there's no room for vanity and pride. Because you say to God in your prayers, you say, God, thank you so much for helping me this morning to see the way I am. And thank you, God, for giving me your Holy Spirit and the life of Christ so that I am a new creature, a new person made in your image and I want to ultimately be born into your family as a son of God with the full nature of God. And it becomes an exciting thing. No longer do you, do you have to try and defend yourself against your, you know, other people or compare yourself or compete with other people. Life becomes so much more easy because you don't, you've become humble, you've become very real. And you come to what is called an unconditional surrender. <clears throat> Mr. Armstrong spoke about this uh, in his... Um, let me just find this particular aspect of it. This is from Mr. Armstrong from his autobiography. This is uh, volume 1, pages, page 523. Mr. Armstrong said, Every convert I have ever baptized and ha uh, had obeyed all the truths as soon as I taught them. They were submissive, teachable, yielded to God, hungry for his truth. The knowledge of the Lord is something to teach converted people whose minds are opened by God's Spirit, and we must continually grow in this knowledge. Repentance, Mr. Armstrong said, means unconditional surrender to God and to God's will and his way or whatever he commands. I want to tell you a story about unconditional surrender. It happened in August of 1945. And it happened on a USS, a United States battleship, the USS Missouri, in Tokyo Harbor or Tokyo Bay. It was the signing of the uh, surrender of the Japanese Imperial forces to General Douglas MacArthur of the U.S. forces. And it went like this. Just prior uh, to the um, surrender, the Americans had determined that it would take one million, at least one million, American lives to be lost in taking the islands of Japan. And so President Truman made the decision that the atomic bomb should be dropped on Hiroshima and the second one on Nagasaki. The Japanese response at the, after the two atomic bombs had been dropped was that they would surrender. And so they communicated to the American government through the Swiss ambassador in Washington that they were prepared to surrender their forces. They did say, though, that they would, in surrendering all Army, Navy, and Air Force uh, material and personnel, 
that they would continue to honour their Emperor Hirohito. Douglas MacArthur sent back a message to the Japanese through the Swiss ambassador and said this, Unless you unconditionally surrender, including surrendering your worship of Emperor Hirohito as a god, we will not accept your surrender. The Japanese thought about it, and they came back, and they agreed that they would make as a part of their surrender the removal of that particular belief in Japan of Emperor Hirohito being a god. Can you see the parallel for us? Our unconditional surrender requires that we surrender ourselves and the way that we worship ourselves and we believe in our identity and we believe in who and what we are. God cannot allow anyone into his family and into his kingdom who's going to harbor ideas and ambitions that are going to be injurious to the government and the family of God. He's already had one being who did that. And so total surrender, unconditional surrender, means that when we go to God in repentance, we say, God, I surrender every aspect of my life. Not just the bad bits, but the good bits too. And I think I've talked to you about that before. About the fact that when we really repent, we repent of every aspect of our life. And so this second stage of repentance is very important. Because it means that we come to a complete repentance, an unconditional repentance. And it means that we become teachable. And we want God to show us his way. Dr. Winnale, in his comments, you might just want to follow it with me here if you've got your um, brochure here. Uh, Dr. Winnale asked the question here, are you teachable? He says, the scriptures reveal that one of the important qualities of character that God is looking for in Christians, future leaders in his kingdom, is teachability. The desire and the willingness to listen and learn. Abraham was teachable and responsive, responsive to God's instruction. And he gives Genesis 12 as a scripture. Moses was a very capable leader, but he was also humble and teachable. Teach me, David said, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Solomon recognized his human inadequacies when he asked God for wisdom. And so you can see that teachability is an important aspect of our conversion and repentance. It's really amazing. We're getting so many go-tos at the moment that we try to follow them up, or we try to not so much follow them up. But, well, yes, I guess we are, but we, we phone a person and we say, you've asked where our church, where, our, uh, where we meet for services. Uh, can you uh, tell me where you live? And, uh, and, and they say, well, we live in such and such a place. Well, we really don't have a, a congregation uh, right near that uh, <clears throat> city at the moment. Tell me a little bit about uh, why you uh, are asking this. Are you interested in, in our literature? Do you find it helpful? Oh, yes, it's, it's really good. But I, I, I do have a problem. You, you seem to believe in such and such. Yes, we do. 
Well, you know, I've been studying my Bible and I, and I don't think you're right on that. Well, you know, that's for you to determine. We're not here to, to tell you what to do or what to believe. All we can do is present the material to you and you then have to consider it and think about it. Yeah, okay, well, I agree with you on probably about mm, 70 or 80% of what you write and what you say, uh, but another 20 or 30% I'm not really sure about. Well, my advice to you then is to go and get on your knees and ask God to show you who is right. Because it's got to be between you and God. It can't be between you and me or the church. This is something that you've got to work through. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Well, that's what I found, that when I didn't understand something, I asked God to show me. So that's why the way we deal with people. But if you find that people say, well, I don't really understand, but I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to listen, then we can work with that. Can you understand the difference? And so in counseling people on the phone and face-to-face -face quite often, I had an interesting visit uh, this is maybe about two months ago. I went to visit a lady, and I'm sitting there in, in her lounge room with her daughter, and also her neighbor was interested as well. And uh, I said, well, um, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Iran. Oh, I said, uh, uh, so I said, does that mean that you uh, were formerly a Muslim? Yes, she said. And uh, so we talked, and we got talking about things, and she was teachable. And she said, I, I just need to have a church to, uh, to meet in. She lives in Nottingham. Well, I said, I won't tell you what her name was. Uh, Madam, I said, I would love to be able to do something for you. But I said, really, we're, we're stretched very thin here at the moment. I said, I can't see how we're going to be able to, to help you. You know, I went home that night. She must have prayed because a thought came into my mind and I thought, we could have a a video group here. In fact, if we had one, let me see, those people could come down. Oh, and he could come to, and if he came, and I looked at the map, and I worked out that we could have eight or ten people. So I phoned her back. I said, you know what? I've already booked a, uh, uh, a venue for next uh, uh, th three weeks' time, and we had our first Sabbath service in Nottingham, and we had eight people. Not everyone could get there. And this one lady, she said that. And I thought, well, why don't I do it? So we've done that. So I'm able to do a morning service in Nottingham and then drive an hour and a half and two hours back to Cambridge. And we've just started a congregation. We had 18 people there for our second Sabbath service. So that's 26 people that couldn't have got together. So we've been able to start that, that little circuit. So that plugs a gap right here in the East Midlands and in East Anglia. And because this lady's attitude, she was so teachable. You know, her attitude was just excellent. So God does want us to have that frame of mind and that attitude. In fact, notice Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. You know, what the one thing we don't want to be in our Christian life is spiritual teenagers. Well, when I say that, spiritually um, insolent teenagers. <laughs> Because not all teenagers are insolent. We've got some excellent teenagers in the church. But Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, notice what Christ says here. He says, And assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted, see, unless you are converted and become as little children. What, do you mean to say I've got to 
step down from where I am on my high horse of vanity and pride? Yes. And step down and become teachable like a little child. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So conversion and a childlike attitude go hand in hand. And you know, you can be in the church 30, 40 years, and you must never lose that childlike teachability that God wants us to have. So now let's think then a little more about this important stage of conversion. This stage of conversion is vital in the path to eternal life and useful service in God's kingdom. So, off, so often, though, it is still based on me and my conversion and my membership of the church and what can the church give me. So we actually have to come to a third stage of conversion. And that third stage of conversion is God-centered conversion. This is where we go from thinking just about uh, number one, uh, numero uno, is it, uh, for our Spanish people here? Uh, yeah. Number one, where we think that we're the most important, to where we become God-centered. The third stage of conversion involves active, growing faith. It expresses itself in daily prayer and study. It comes out in acts of kindness and concern for others because this Christian the Christian that has reached the third stage of, stage of conversion has actually changed the way they think. Instead of waiting for an article in the Living Church News or waiting for a good sermon at Sabbath services, this person starts to self-actualize, starts to be able to see that their relationship is with God and God personally and that they don't no longer want to think of what's good for them and them only. This is a vitally important stage. I like to put it this way. Do you remember when you were at, uh, at high school and uh, track day would be coming around? And there were always those that were great at the, at the, at the, at the sprints or the, you know, the long distance running. And there was someone who was good at the shot put. And there was someone who was good at the long jump. There was always someone that was good at the high jump. Well, the Christian life is a lot like a high jump. When I was at school, I was not a good high jumper. And I used to did not like to see the teacher or the, the coach raise the bar. Oh, no, I can't get over that. But there was always someone in the class who was prepared to go home and ask his dad, to make up their own set of high jumps in their backyard. And they would get to set the bar where they wanted. And they would develop their own regime and practice method for clearing the bar. They didn't expect the coach to come around and notch up the bar. They did it themselves. They made sure that they put the pressure on themselves. And so what happens for a person like this who is in the God-centered conversion area of their life, it is no longer is it good enough to sit in their own spiritual comfort zone. Rather, they step out of their comfort zone spiritually. 
They choose to fast regularly. They choose to overcome. They do their prayer and their Bible study because they love to pray and study. They look at opportunities in their life to overcome. They seek counsel. And there was one man who operated at this level of conversion most of the time. And his name was King David. Let's have a look at Psalm 51. And notice how God-centered he was in his thinking. You know, the Psalms are a perfect example for each one of us of a man that really did love God. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. He prays to God and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. He, he, he directs his, his prayer to God immediately and God is the benchmark. He says, According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Look at verse 4. Against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. God, I want to clear the decks. I want to be sure and certain that my sins are forgiven, not for me, but for you. Look, he says, against you only have I sinned and done evil this evil in your sight, that you, God, may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I, brought, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not that she was sin, sinning in what she did, but she was a, sinning, a sinful person is what he's saying. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. You see, he's, he's God-centered. <coughs> this is what's important. I don't find David in any one of these in, in this, any one of his psalms, and in particular this one, saying, O oh God, forgive me so that people will think well of me. Or God, I want to be accepted by other people. It's all about God. And that's what this stage of conversion brings us to. And, as I said, it's our comfort zones that we have to deal with. Esther, chapter 4, verse 13. For you ladies, this is a wonderful example in the book of Esther. Let's turn to Esther, chapter 4, and verse 13. Notice Mordecai, her uncle, told them to answer Esther and say, Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. He's saying, Esther, this is your opportunity. You have come to a critical point in your life. You know, I think you could probably almost count on one hand 
the number of times in your life that you've come to a real crisis where you have to make a decision to go with God or go with yourself or your friends or your family or other people. It's very few times. But you know what I've noticed? When you come to it, you've know, you know you've come to it. And you cannot escape. And you have to make a critical decision. And you say to yourself, uh-oh, I either do this and I save my salary or I keep my friends or whatever. And we are faced oftentimes, well not oftentimes, it's not oftentimes, but the, at these times in our life we have to make the right decision. And so that's why Mordecai said, do not think in your heart that you will escape. And now notice what he says in verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God's going to save them, Esther. It's up to you. And if you don't pass the test, then someone else will. It says, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What have been the times in your life that you have come to a time and that's the time. You cannot prevaricate. You cannot procrastinate. You cannot stand there any longer. You must act and you must act decisively based on principle and God's word. And so you do. Maybe you are asked to do something that is going to be very painful. But you do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's what a God-centered person comes to. How do you think Daniel felt when he went and prayed knowing that the spies would be out to watch him? And sure enough, they looked through his window. Aha! We've got him. And they dragged him off to throw him into the lion's den. What about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Will you bow down to the image? No, we won't. Uh-huh. Well, it's uh, onto the fiery furnace for you. And, you know, you can go through many biblical examples of, of men and women who stood by their principles. I heard that Mr. Rod McNair gave a sermon recently on Jeremiah, who stood faithful for 40 years for his principle, ending up right up under his armpits in slime because he was a God-centered man. You know, these are the things that we have to come to in our life and ask God to give us that help. Some people, as I said, will reach level three at the personal level but avoid the deepest level of commitment of all, which is the fourth, fourth level. What is that? Total reliance on God. Total reliance on God. Yes, true total surrender is one thing which has to happen with our conversion. But total reliance on God, very few of us really reach this level of conversion all the time. And in fact, there was only one person who ever reached this level all the time. Who was he? Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. And he was so aware of his total reliance on God 
that we have his words recorded. Let me read them to you. Let us go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Jesus Christ was so aware of his total need for God at all times that this is what he said in John chapter 5 verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Can I read that first part again to you? It says, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Nothing? You mean absolutely nothing? Did he... You know, not know when to pick up a knife and fork. I don't know whether they used knives and forks in his day. <laughs> uh, no, he's talking spiritually. There was not one thing. He kept himself under such a tight rein that he was in a constant state of awareness of his relationship with his father. Notice verse 30. John 5 verse 30. I can of myself do nothing that is spiritually you know how many of us think to ourselves deep really deep deep inside well god did know when he called me that i did have good strong patience and he could use that patience well christ said he could of his own self do nothing notice what it says reading on Verse, uh, verse 30 we're reading, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. There it is, folks. That's the fourth level of conversion. Total reliance on God. Now, I'm here to tell you that no one in this room goes and stays at one level and is so really super spiritual that they never go, dun, dun. <laughs> we all have our downers, as we say. Points where we've been strong and close to God. Do you remember Elijah? There he was, slaying the prophets of Baal and throwing water all over the altar with a sacrifice and then calling down fire and poosh, everything goes up. And just a few days later, he's down in some cave, saying, oh, poor me. Do you know why he went down there? Because Jezebel said, I'm going to get him. Jezebel said, I'm going to destroy him. And he lost all of his faith and all of his confidence. And that's what happens to us in life. Sometimes we're really spiritually strong and we've been fasting and praying and overcoming and having good success. And then we seem to just Lose it all. <laughs> Don't be discouraged if that's happened to you. Because you have an everlasting father who is so convinced that you're going to make it that he will patiently work with you and bring you back to him and lift you up and strengthen you and give you the help you need. You know, when a person's reached these different stages of conversion, the wonderful and beautiful thing about it is they have already been there so they know how to get back there. Prayer, study fasting, repentance, 
being teachable, getting advice and counsel, humbling yourself. It's a beautiful, that's a wonderful process. It is refreshing to have your, your, your whole being washed clean by the blood of Christ. And as we approach Passover and we come to this time, let's use this time to raise the bar on the high jump. But let us be the one that sets the bar. Let us be the one that increase, that puts the pressure on ourselves to increase our prayer and study. Let us be the one that takes charge of our life and puts that life in the hands of the everlasting God. Let us be the one that submits and surrenders our will, our mind to God. And let us rejoice as we do this. And let us thank God that he has called us to an everlasting calling. And let us fulfill that calling in the kingdom of God.